Look, Barn, I know you're still a little mad at me. But I want you to know that if I had to have someone hanging next to me, I'm glad it's you. I guess switching them tests didn't turn out much like I planned, huh, Fred? Hey, got any lemon? Check in the back. Gee, why can't business be this good every day? Story of my life. I'm a loser. No, you're not. What, this makes me a winner? No, but you're the best friend a guy ever had, and that makes you a winner in my book, pal. Me? I'm just a big jerk. Hey, everybody loves you, Fred. Except, of course, for this lynch mob. Not a barn. Not Fred. Welcome to part two of our Flintstones episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on their exclusive patron feed. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So, as you would expect, a lot of stuff doesn't make it into our episodes, the main feed. That means that there's plenty of stuff to go into the cutting room segments. That's the first thing you have available to you, all patrons, starting from the dollar tier, the Travoltis. Maybe Alex sang the entire B-52 song. Maybe not. One way to find out. If he did, it's on the Patreon channel. You also get access to all our bonus episodes. This month, we have two of them because we have a Christmas episode, as we like to do, uh, which will be on the second Black Christmas movie. Uh, we did the original last Christmas. This Christmas, we're doing the remake with uh, Ramona Flowers, Lacey Chabert, and uh, Harry the Spy. And, and Ben Shapiro. <laughs> and Ben Shapiro, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. And then our second bonus episode is the one that's picked by patrons. So this is from Jamie Russell, and he's making us watch the movie Harold and Maude. Alex, are you familiar with this classic? I'm familiar in the sense that I know it's a massive blind spot for me, so I'm fired up. Yeah, I know one thing about the movie, but I'm not going to tell you about it until after we we watch it and discuss it. We already recorded the the Black Christmas episode because we're we're trying to be very proactive (laughs) about our December schedule. Uh, Harold and Maude, not yet. So... That is dropping later this month. Uh, Now, if you want more content, of course, you move up a tier. So then there's the Winonis, $3. And that gives you access to our pre-recording notes. That gives you access to our QVRs. This month, we're doing the final dual QVR of the season. We're going to have more uh, next year. But this is the one that closes uh, the leftovers of the patron takeover. We're doing a dual QVR demanded by John Amenta. From the pint and he wants us to watch the movie ravenous so keep an eye out on our youtube channel and our patreon channel for that and then of course we have contrarians after hours that's the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we're watching that we're reading that we're listening to that we're playing alex what are you bringing to contrarians after hours this time well, Julio, recently I finally was able to cross off my list of shit to do. I saw Sky Ferreira in concert. I know her name's Sky Ferreira. I don't know why. Somehow in my mind, I got it with Sky Fiera. So I go back and forth sometimes. <laughs> so if I mispronounce her name, just understand I know what's what. Do you uh, ever call uh, Guy Fieri Guy Ferreira? I think that might be it. I mix them up. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever seen Sky Ferreira and Guy Fieri, they look exactly alike and it's really easy to confuse them. And they're both in the Green Inferno. So. <laughs> wasn't ready for that 
Uh, yeah, man. I'm a huge Sky Ferreira fan. Finally saw her in concert, and it was not without its drama. So Ooh. I look forward to regaling y'all with the story. For those that don't know, though, also the part of the backstory is it had been 10 years since she played in Austin. She doesn't tour that often. She hasn't released new music in a while. She's been in this decade-long uh, contractual battle with Columbia Records, and she's a she's an interesting cat as it is. And there was, uh, it couldn't have gone easy, I should say. It was kind of the payoff to finally seeing her of like uh, the issues that came with it. So I will go into depth on the, my recent experience seeing Sky Ferrer in concert and how uh, now I'm happy because it's it's off the list. Uh, I look forward to finding out if you got her to sign your copy of Baby Driver. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to throw it over to you in a pleasant way now. Just say what you're going to talk about. <laughs> Alex, I also went on an adventure last weekend, and that is I drove to Dallas to attend the premiere of the movie Vice Mares, which is not available to anybody right now. But as soon as it is, I guess I'll let you know. I'll let everybody know because that's uh, a movie that our friend Corey Ari, the, the man behind all our videos, he wrote it. He stars in it. And we, if you've been with us for a while, we recorded a little thing that's supposed to play in the background. It's like a commercial for, what, what was it? Mattresses? Body bags, body bags, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he told me about it. I and I just, I went. I made the trek to Dallas. It's kind of a long drive, but I'll tell you, it was worth it. And uh, I'll tell you about the premiere. I'll tell you a little bit about the movie and uh, my my adventures there. Uh, just to round it up, I'll also tell you about another kind of indie movie that has also a connection, and that is The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is... Jim Cummings' follow-up to Thunder Road. We did Thunder Road on the Patreon channel last year, I want to say. Also requested by Jamie Russell. And uh, I came out of that movie with many opinions. And one of those was that I needed to watch more Jim Cummings stuff. So this is second movie. Uh, I watched it. I also have opinions about it. So I will share them with you. It was uh, free on Tubi. So it was it was an easy watch. So that's it. The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Weismir, Sky Fiera. Now I'm doing it. <laughs> Sky Ferreira. <laughs> and maybe Guy Fieri. Who knows? Who knows what happened when Alex went to that show? We, we go places on Patreon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's all on the after hours. And then if you want to be part of that elite group that determines what some of our episodes are here and on the Patreon channel, that's what the $5 tiers, the Embrys, and the $10 tier, the GADs are for. Just go to patreon.com slash Prime, look at what the options are, see how you would like to support the show, and join the Contrarian Supplements. You'll, you'll have a good time. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are respective tiers. Uh, $1 gets you on the ground floor, gets you access to the things Hulu is outlined, plus our patron-exclusive miniseries, be it the Rock John Cena uh, mega series we did or our Lindsay Lohan career retrospective. And also, as we've outlined previously, we've got our uh, goals that we're looking to reach. And once we reach said goals of uh, patrons, we'll be rolling out some new uh, patron exclusive mini series <laughs> to all of our current patrons. We love you all dearly. Thank you so much for uh, taking the plunge. And as I like to say, we are always reviewing and accepting new applications so head on over throw us a buck 
take a look around and let us know what you think. We have the chat on there too on our Patreon. That's yes. always fun to go back and forth with uh, our friends there. So, all right, Julio, you mentioned Tubi. I assume that's also how you watched the Flintstones. Please carve all answers with a well sharpened number two chisel. <laughs> so many. You you type the Flintstones and you get this Flintstones. You get Viva Rock Vegas. You mm-hmm. get. I think three separate cartoons. Tubi's got the Flintstones franchise on it. Yeah, I think this was first released on Blu-ray within the past 10 years. But the the version on Tubi's legit HD rip of it. It looks like it's direct from uh, the film as well. So uh, good shit. I recommend if you want to watch the Flintstones, at least in America, without paying for it, you can head on over to uh, our friends at Tubi. Now, the Flintstones... Wastes beloved source material and imaginative production design on a tepid script that plunks Bedrock's favorite family into a cynical story awash with lame puns. That is a critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes. As I mentioned, Siskel and Ebert both gave this uh, a thumbs down. However, Ebert's review, he gave it two and a half stars, and he's on a scale of four. So, um, Once again, highlighting the problem with the tomato meter. Siskel gave it one and a half stars they both mentioned that the main storyline was for an adult film and that the children wouldn't understand this being embezzlement mother-in-law problems (laughs) office politics (laughs) extramarital affairs Halle Berry being too hot yeah Uh, multiple golden raspberry nominations we'll run these down real quick before we get to your positive uh, critics quote Tulio so this was the year Color of Night won Worst Picture. Is that their Bruce Willis movie? Bruce Willis and Jane March, yeah. All right, so the Flintstones nominations included Rosie O'Donnell and Elizabeth Taylor for Worst Supporting Actress, which I don't agree with. <laughs> Man, they just Hollywood royalty is not safe. It won Worst Screenplay, where they actually... Uh, Listed out all the uh, 30 plus writers that in the 10 years it was in production hell got attributed, got uh, a writing credit, I should say. Although Jim Genowine and Stephen E. DeSouza were both credited as primary screenwriters, first build writer Tom S. Parker was the only, quote, winner in the film. The other 31 recipients all wrote drafts of the screenplay. So this is like if I always wish there was like that credit in Freddy versus Jason where everyone who ever wrote a script got a credit and it just like (laughs) like ran like a Rolodex down the screen. (laughs) And then it was nominated for Worst Remake or Sequel, but it lost to Wyatt Earp, uh, the Kevin Costner. I think this is, and this will serve as a segue into your your quotes here, Julio. I think this is one of those fine examples that we come across every once in a while on this show of a movie that in its time was reviled and now watching it 30 years later, it's like, man, there's a lot to enjoy about this. At the same time, it's not like we're unearthing some hidden like gem that people don't know about. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. But before we get to that, Julio, what uh, positive critical quotes were you able to pull from uh, Rotten Tomatoes? So so wait, what you're saying is that the Flintstones has been Elizabethtown decades later. Uh, yes, it doesn't. <laughs> 
Elizabethtown doesn't have Halle Berry looking as good as this. <laughs> Elizabethtown doesn't have Kyle McLaughlin as the bad guy in a kid's movie. <laughs> All right. All fair points. None of them referenced on these fresh quotes. <laughs> Let's start with Steve Warren from Southern Voice Atlanta, who says, state-of-the-art effects courtesy of Industrial Light and Magic and presenter Steven Spielrock, and throwaway side gags that will encourage return visits, turn what might have been a yabba-dabba-dud into a yabba-dabba-doozy of a summer yes. movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you got two of them. Uh Kevin A. Ranson from MovieCrypt.com says, barely there, but still fun. Yeah. Paul Trendall from Common Sense Media says, zany cave age antics living too serious plot. Is it really too serious of a plot? I, I, I feel like I can't be objective about this. I don't know. Because you think about like Full House and like, uh, I'm trying. Of course, I'm blanking right now. Growing up in the '90s, I'm thinking of shows that like were meant for like a younger audience, but still dealt with like adult quote unquote themes. That I don't think any of the stuff in this is too out there for kids to not at least grasp in like the slightest level. Because even still, they may not understand all the machinations of like what embezzlement means and shit. But just the way the movie's presented, it's like, all right, here's the bad guy, yep. and he's trying to set up the good guy. Yeah, it feels like. Like when people say that the Phantom Menace has a plot that is too uh, uh, too adult oriented, you know, because of the Trade Federation, whatever. I, I get it in the sense that it's they're not saying that it's too complicated. What they're saying is that it's boring. You know, you've had mm-hmm. three Star Wars movies that were about just very straightforward adventure, and then you get into politics in the in, you know, on the first prequel, and it's kind of a change of pace that was not beneficial, I think, to the franchise. But here. It's exactly what you just said. You know, it's like good guys, bad guys. There's a lot of like fun creatures running around and and, and there's a lot of physical gags. So I don't think that there were kids confused by this movie or yeah. or feeling that it was too serious. I, I was watching. I was like, this is such a kid's movie. It, it really that's just for the parents, I guess. It's like an excuse for the story to happen. Speaking of which. Karen James from New York Times says, while the movie may act like a Madeline for television-obsessed baby boomers, it works even better as a colorful playland that will appeal to small children. All right. I mean, it is for kids. It is a kid's movie, Alex. Now that we're in real talk, would you agree with that? That controversial statement. That this is a kid's movie? Yeah, Yeah. this is... Movie made for kids, which, uh, paraphrasing... Brie Larson's controversial statements a while ago. Uh, it means that maybe adults have no business judging it. <laughs> uh, do you think that this movie is getting judged? Like the people that are giving it rotten scores, that rotten score is reflective of people that are maybe missing the point that this is a kid's movie? Yeah. And also, we've talked about this a lot in our tenuous history of the contrarians. Like, there was a period of time there where like anything that was perceived as below like Howard the Duck immediately comes to mind of just like it's just dumb man and there's a place for dumb movies there's a place for kids movies there are bad kids movies but like it seemed like there was especially in the 80s and 90s this effort to diminish what that could offer and 
you watch something like this and it's like, fuck, man, there's not anyone making movies like this anymore. Like the, the, the movie like this wouldn't get made today. And obviously that's a, a massive benefit of hindsight. But I think a lesson to take away from something like this, and especially we always go back to Howard the Duck. It's just like just because a movie's kind of dumb and isn't to what like your standard what we talk about in that episode if you want to go back the way they where they really fucked up on that was they said george lucas presents so people were expecting like star wars <laughs> but like um this is take your little kids to the drive-in movie theater and you know get mcdonald's you know i know that sounds so elitistly american but uh there's merit to movies like this and i'm i don't know that that's gone that idea that people still reject children's movies or want to trash them as like viciously as you'll find in reviews from like the nineties or late eighties. Like I said, uh, I don't know if that's completely gone. It's more of just apathy has completely set in an ambivalence, uh, because now most of the reviews you will find for kids movies do, uh, come back to like, yeah, I'm, I'm not the audience for it anymore. Whereas, you know, you can find some amazing, Ebert reviews just shredding kids movies from back in the day and it's just kind of like yeah Raj it, it ain't I love reading them because they crack me up but it's like Raj it ain't for you man and <laughs> you know am I shocked that Gene Siskel did not like the Flintstones no I'm not at all surprised by this it's uh they can't all be Pixar son of a Brachiosaurus I did not know that about Brie Larson, by the way. Was she referencing the Marvel movies? Uh, she was specifically referencing, oh man, I don't know. I, I think it was when Captain Marvel came out and there was like a lot of hatred towards it from, you know, those people. And that Okay, well, her not her personally, but that idea that like those movies are for kids, they can shove that up their butt. Like that's... Oh, no, no, no. She that, didn't say it wasn't about kids. It was more about... Man, it might not have even been about Captain Marvel. I think it was... Because you I, did say I, paraphrase, so I'm sorry. I'm not yeah, trying to jump yeah, yeah. down your throat about no, no, this. It, it had nothing to do with it being about kids. It was more about – there was a movie. It might have been Captain Marvel. It might have been um, – uh, was it – it was like an adaptation of a book and Oprah was in it. And uh, it was like a kid's book. Wrinkle in Time maybe? I don't know. But it was mm. – uh, I don't know. It got trashed by critics and uh, – Brie Larson said something along the lines of like, well, this movie was directed by a woman. It stars women and it's, you know, its point of view is it's very like female centric. So ah. maybe, you know, all these male critics that are trashing it should just accept that it wasn't made for them. And it's like it, it was like a, a press conference or like some panel, something. It just blew up. And that's what. Yeah, it, uh. I don't think it was for Captain Marvel because that's what led to like a bunch of angry people like trying to boycott Captain Marvel and leaving like negative reviews and whatever. It was like, you know, the kind of thing that oh, you can just, so that's okay. That, that explains a little bit more about why angry yep. men exactly. are so fun. Yeah. yeah. It was, she was Idiots. making a point that we've made on the show before, you know, it was like some movies are just not for, you know, a certain audience. And, but God forbid you tell a white man with a pen <laughs> that he cannot have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and she wasn't saying that they can't have an opinion. She 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 was just saying that basically. Oh, and actually, the bigger point she was making was that that's why you need diversity in voices in critics. It's like the problem is that when mm. most of the critics are older white men, then you just get that one point of view. And it's like if the movie was not specifically made for them, then you get 
a lot of negative reviews that end up influencing, you know, how the movie does and so on. So it's like she wanted more women in, in criticism, more minorities in criticism. Like all that is like sensible points to be made and sensible conversation yeah. starters. But of course, the internet is the internet. So they just took like everything out of context and used it and weaponized it. And it and it's like now you can't make that point without <laughs> It getting blown out of proportion and and engendering uh, really violent reactions online, which you know whatever, fuck them. But anyway, so yeah, so I guess just zeroing in on the point we're trying to make with all this, and you know, fair play to her with that. But like, we do live in a different time now. Of there's so many movies that go straight to streaming, and there's already the built in. Yeah, it was all right for like you know a straight to streaming movie. Yeah, it was all right for a Netflix movie. Um, I think putting ourselves in the mindset of 1994 and being completely like subjective about this, uh, objective, excuse me. It's look, movies are were especially at this point in time, different than kind of anything else. You go to McDonald's, you know what to expect. You go to a five-star steakhouse, you know you know what to expect. Movies, this movie was released, so The Crow came out two weeks before this, and it was released the same way The Flintstones were. You went to the same building, and you went to the <laughs> same type of room to watch it. So, and that's where, you know, I stand up for like, Siskel and Ebert when people say Raj was too big of an asshole or too critical dude every movie was fed to him the same way and he <laughs> judged it on the same scale and there's consistency in that and that's respectable there is yes absolutely the caveat or the asterisk that hey Flintstones ain't meant for you man or like this is for a different audience but the way movies were served then was just everything was presented in the same fashion so a lot of people judge them using the same criteria. Like I said today, that's all wobbled because people are more conscious of movies being made for a certain audience. There's people make excuses preliminarily for movies. Now, like I said, if it's straight to streaming, people have a whole different lens that they view it through, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, in the box office, uh, on the Memorial day weekend of 1994, you know, the crow, Flintstones, Beverly Hills Cop 3, you know, people just went to those and it's just the movies. It's what it is. And so <laughs> it's a buffet. Just, it is. Just take what you want. Hilariously, like this tickled me pink. Beverly Hills Cop 3 came out on that Wednesday to try to get ahead of the box office <laughs> juggernaut that would be the Flintstones. Uh, it's an apt segue sort of into what I was going to use as a comparison point. And that is that you said there are bad kids movies, kids movies that don't work, kids movies that uh, you can just, you can't just say, oh, well, it's a kids movie. Or maybe you can. Something like baby geniuses. That's something I always think of. It's well, like, that is just like bottom of the barrel. I was going to go a little, a little higher. <laughs> yeah. Baby geniuses is, that is just, that's a movie that uses uh, oh, it's a kid's movie as an excuse to just be trash. And you can well, actually, I've never seen Baby Geniuses. I'm thinking of the sequel. I watched Baby Geniuses 2, Super Babies, or Super Geniuses, whatever it's called. Uh, All right, let's, uh, let's use yeah, – because that's like revered as like one of the worst – not revered. Yeah, let's use a different example. No, well, that's, I, was, I was going back to Contrarian's history, and you mentioned Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop 3, and I'm thinking of Daddy Daycare, right? Like, oh, I, good one. It's a movie we didn't hate. 
but it's a movie that's a kid's movie, and you're like, this could be so much better, right? Yeah. <laughs> given the talent involved and given the, the you know, it, it, it can be better. Now, with the Flintstones, I think it's it, like if you start thinking of a more sophisticated take on the Flintstones live action, I, I almost feel like it stops being the Flintstones. Like what, what exactly, mm-hmm. what is the better version of this movie? Like I I can't think of it, and if somebody can, then I guess kudos. Michael but, uh, Haneke's The Flintstones. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Fred uh, has prostate cancer and is bedridden. <laughs> Daring Aronofsky's The Flintstones, like Fred kills Barney and <laughs> <laughs> Wilma gets hooked on barbiturates. Uh, there is, I guess, there is a Pixar version of The Flintstones, but then it's not live action. You know, and I think yeah. that when you translate it to live, maybe the maybe the the lesson is don't translate it to live action. You know, it's just the specific brand of humor and the, the, the just the quirkiness of the of that, like The Simpsons, right? Like, can you imagine a live action Simpsons movie? And if if they made it, well, is there a way for it to translate what the cartoon is without people getting pissed off, being disappointed? Like, I was thinking That's about a great that. Example. I was like. Who plays Homer, you know, and would it ever be as perfect as John Goodman playing uh, <laughs> Fred? No. Yeah. Because Homer is yellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who plays Bart? I mean, you can't, you know, you, you'll find it. It'll be interesting. Oh, it's interesting how they translated it. But in the end, you're going to get a whole bunch of people saying, well, that's not The Simpsons. Just just watch the cartoon. Why did they even bother? Like, I think that with the Flintstones, Yes, I've been delaying it. I, I did like it, Alex. I had a good time. Uh, Hell yeah! It, it was. I think it was a worthy endeavor because it was really rewarding, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people. Those people don't have Rotten Tomatoes accounts, I guess, but they, they just to see how they brought it to life. Like I, you know, you have this prehistoric world that they created as a cartoon, and then what does it look like when it's live action? And it looks amazing. <laughs> it looks. It's a yeah, lot of fun. That's- that's something that really needs to be celebrated about this movie is they went all in on like making every facet of it like the cartoon and really bringing a cartoon world to real life, you know, as much as they could with a movie set. Yeah, it's uh, I it, it didn't like the, the CGI that it's here and there that it's obviously, you know, kind of like take it doesn't it didn't take me out like I noticed it, but I'm like. Yeah, it's fine. You know, it blends. It gets you where it needs to be. Uh, I just thought it was so much fun to see that they built all this stuff and they 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 really thought through the the machinations like the the, the set design right the production design and how like these machines work and what the you know the the <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin's contraption like it's there's a catapult <laughs> there's like rocks being reshaped and uh and the way that they do the tests with the chisel, you know, it's every little detail that they had about this world. I'm like, yeah, that's why you make it live action. So we can get to see it that way and be amused by it. And I think that all the performances are on point. Uh, I think some people are more cartoony than others, but I think that that's also the way it is with the show, right? Like in the show, the like Wilma and Betty are always more subdued than... yeah than Fred and Barney. So it makes sense that Elizabeth Perkins and Rosie O'Donnell, they really, even though they get their moments, but it's not like fucking John Goodman gets to like jump up and float in the air a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get that. <gasps> oh, oh, now Wilma, don't be silly. 
Your husband's a big executive. You can afford it. Charge it! <laughs> so I think that as a translation of the Flintstones, in again, not being a Flintstone connoisseur, but having a, enough of memory to be aware of it in, in its place in pop culture, I think that that part works and it works uh, as well as it could have worked. I've used this argument when, whenever the Cats adaptation has come up. I'm like, that Cats movie, you can hate it, but it's basically what an adaptation of the musical would be. <laughs> you know, it's like people wearing Cats costumes, singing songs. That's, you know, it's, you can't get mad at a movie for being a reasonable adaptation of the source material. And you're going to get mad at it if it's not a reasonable adaptation of the source material. So it's kind of like a lose-lose proposition. You would think that people would be more inclined to just celebrate the fact that they got so much of it right here, but uh, apparently Mm -hmm. not. Steven E. DeSouza getting his writing credit on this from the script he wrote, like I said, almost 10 years beforehand. Uh, He also wrote Beverly Hills Cop 3, so he... (laughs) <laughs> no, he had a a good weekend there in <laughs> mid nineteen ninety four, and do you know how he ended the year? You should because we've covered this on Street the Contrarians before. Yes, sir. Yeah, Christmas release. I remember that. Christmas Day brought a hundred million back home. You know, not him entirely. I'm sure Jean Claude got seventy percent of that. <laughs> Man, that uh... went, went right up his nose. <laughs> Uh, 1993, Steven E. De Souza didn't see his family. He was just cranking out script after script, draft after draft. Man, we have we were when we cross the certain threshold on our patron, we're going to be doing the Running Man, which he uh, penned, and then we've uh, discussed Die Hard in here before Hudson Hawk. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna have to add some more De Souza here to the. <laughs> To the run, we gotta make him a his his special section on the patron, like his own collection. Yes, the, 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 the collection. collection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree with everything you said about this, and there is a lot of benefit to hindsight on this. Uh, when we're talking about kids' movies, also that aren't good, one of the things I thought of when the thing of oh, this story, kids aren't gonna understand it. Do you remember that movie Monsters versus Aliens? Yes. I remember watching that and I was like, kids aren't going to get any of these fucking jokes. I re- and it was all like, it was like family guy type shoehorned references. And it was like, yeah, there's some like body humor and whatnot in this, but kids aren't going to understand like the premise or get many of these jokes. And I don't feel that here. Uh, I, I know there could be an embedded bias because I like this and I thought Monsters vs. Aliens sucked. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, there there are this is to me one of those kids movies where there's enough shit in there to keep a kid's interest. There's dinosaurs for crying out loud. And then also things to make your parents go, ha. And, you know, if you brought your grandma or grandpa along, it's like, holy shit, it's Elizabeth Taylor. It's Cleopatra. <laughs> Literally fun for the whole family. <laughs> Yes. And then the and then the teenage son who doesn't talk to anybody anymore is above it all, but is very into film. He does the Leo and he snaps his fingers and he goes <laughs> and points. He goes, that's Sam Raimi. You know, it, <laughs> so there's something for everybody here. Who uh, who freaks out when the B-52s show up? That would have to be the parents because they. Yeah, because the b fifty two started in the late 70s. So that that would Rock Lobster, that song is from 1978. So that would have to be for the parents. 
I think I promised it on the when we're doing the preview for this, but uh, they I did see them live the B-52s. So there's not much of a you story did? to it. Yeah, they came to uh, ACL, my first ACL that I attended. So 2009, uh, it's the same one where I saw Pearl Jam and uh, Arctic Monkeys. And uh, awesome, they were literally the first band I saw when I walked into Zelda Park. And uh, they were playing and I... I guess I had made the correlation of who they were. You know, they were, I just had the list of bands playing and I just went to the one that was playing at the time. And I was like, this guy's voice sounds familiar. And then they played Love Shack. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> they played for like an hour. You know, it was like, I don't know, noon. It was really early in the day. But they sounded exactly like they sounded in this movie. And it was fun. And I was surrounded awesome. by, you know, people from all ages that were pretty excited to see them playing live. And there was a lady with a pink dolphin. Uh, balloon that just kept floating around above my head. It was uh, it was fun. It was as much fun as uh, watching John Goodman, Elizabeth Perkins, just dance. <laughs> Waltz, Waltz. Yeah. Do you have a favorite B fifty two song? Love Shack is the only one that I can name. Like the title. I don't know them that well. I just know Love Shack because that song is, I guess, so popular that it just crosses borders and goes around the world. Uh, Rome is my favorite B-52 song for what it's worth. Uh, I do like Rosie O'Donnell here when the B-52s are playing. She's supposed to be mad because she's you know, really discontent with the relationship she has with the Flintstones, mm-hmm. but she can't help herself from kind of dancing in her chair because yeah. the song's so catchy. It's good. They did go all out with the... I was going to say the soundtrack. I mean, the overall gimmick of, oh, this is all prehistoric, right? From the credit, the opening credits and all that. But even the yeah. the closing credits, I'm sure you enjoyed the the music throughout the end credits. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't remember the alternate, but even uh, they do Anarchy in the UK. It's like a reggae version of the, <laughs> the Flintstones theme. Yeah, they went all in, as you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mentioned Rosie. It sometimes gets lost that she, maybe not here specifically, but I always think of A League of Their Own. Like, she's good in that movie. Like, she she had a lot to offer in terms of, like, an on-screen personality. And here is obviously very limited in what we're doing, what we're going for. Uh, but I think she's fun, and I think... Elizabeth Perkins also, who's someone that we've talked about, a um, bit of an underrated actress, and I, I don't know if we got all from her that we could have in the the long run. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is these people that are good screen presences and good actors seem to be really genuinely having fun with this, because we've watched movies too, where 
uh, it does not seem that it's the most fun thing that they've ever done or that they're overjoyed to be there. And I think you have some fairly dignified actors in this movie and they all seem to be having a good time. They are. They are game. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell had one of my favorite lines or one of the ones that made me laugh the most, which is when they rescued them from the lynching, they arrive and she looks at Rick Moranis and she's like, Barney, do you have to do everything Fred does? (laughs) 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 It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I really hope, I I guess what you're saying means that you, you were joking when you said, when you implied that Kyle MacLachlan felt that he was above this. Oh no, he more than anybody. He's, he shines in this dude. (laughs) He's he's so good. And I, I mean, I don't think that I've ever, even on Showgirls, you know, he was not bad. The movie is absolutely terrible. But this was just like, I don't want to be as dramatic as saying that he was born to play this character, but I couldn't recast it, you know? Just- oh, no, it's it's so good. And like when he's looking out the window, like menacingly and like, you know, devising his plan, he's like a... He's like a bad guy from a Batman serial, like back in the day. Like it's so over the top, and yeah, I was joking. I think, especially for someone like him, you read over the movies he's done, and up until that point, you know, Dune and Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks were the big things that he was known for. To to take that to the Flintstones, you know, and then on top of that, he's possibly the most over the top person besides John Goodman in the entire movie. It's it's fantastic. I mean, now we're in real talk. Is he the MVP or is it Moranis? Is it Halle Berry? I know you said uh, you said John Goodman was was your contender in Constraints Corner, but can he's you, great as Fred. But like, can you settle on a favorite? Oh, for like the the pieces involved and like what makes it up, it's definitely Kyle MacLachlan. Like you know, over the fucking moon about Blue Velvet when we did that, <laughs> and I think he's so good and just the idea that within a decade he would be the bad guy you know chasing fred flintstone around and trying to frame him for embezzlement it's it's just wonderful and on top of that like we said he seems to be having uh just a ball doing it it's one of those things if i ever went to a q a he was on it it would be the thing i asked him about like hey tell me about the flintstones you seem to really enjoy that <laughs> how did you keep your feet so clean <laughs> uh how were you able to focus when Halle Berry was your opposite looking the way she did in that movie? Man, he he gets a smooch. He forces a kiss. That's probably the most inappropriate thing in this movie. Yeah, agreed. He, he really is a bad guy. Um, I guess we're, we're leaving Halle Berry for the end since she's the, the reason for this episode. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to bring up Rick Moranis again, just because I really because we don't enough. And I'm not just talking about you and I, I'm talking about the world. The world. Yeah, it is. I understand his reasons for retiring from acting, and that's obviously very noble. Yeah, and clearly, I mean, he he could afford it, so good good for him. Uh, it is a loss for you know cinema that he he doesn't he hasn't made any more movies because he's he's really funny. I don't know that he is one of those actors where I'm like, oh well, that means that I have to go watch every Rick Moranis movie ever. But every time I've seen him in something, he's really funny. So. There's that, and this is another example of. I just, I was so glad that he was the one playing that character because otherwise Barney would have been maybe a little too much, or, or not even too much. It's just that 
you know, he doesn't have as much screen time as Fred, and he he, he plays kind of like the, the the dorky, the really dorky character. So here's the thing, Alex. Just knowing that Stephen Baldwin plays him in the sequel, it that is like the you know the, the alternate, the bad timeline. Yes, <laughs> where, where absolutely. You, you just don't no disrespect to our boy Stephen, but come on. Yeah, we know Stephen Baldwin can be funny. We know Stephen Baldwin can be good, but there is. Uh, please see Fred Claus. the The season is accurate <laughs> to see Stephen Baldwin be very funny. Yes, Fred Claus on the contrarian list of holiday movies approved. Uh, usual suspects, you know, if you want a more serious Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> but but not as Barney. I mean, that is, you, you have to encapsulate that type of character. And, and Moranis does it without being a direct translation of, uh, of the cartoon. Cause you were right. You, you brought it up in the trans corner. Like there is a little bit more of a, I don't know if it's just the voice. So the, the, you have to alter some things in the translation to live action. And I think that Moranis brings, I don't know if his Barney's a little smarter than the cartoon, but he definitely, yeah. There's something to him. He has, a, he has a neck, which I that's always what I remember as a kid. Barney, you know, he was like, he was the same width from his head down to his toes. Uh, yes. I think maybe it's that he has a backbone. I don't remember Barney yeah. having a backbone in the cartoon. Maybe he does in some episodes. I don't know. But he he develops a backbone in this movie, and I think it's necessary for the plot to work the way it works. But he he makes it work. I, I really like him. I it. That, my thought was like, man, it sucks that there's no new Rick Moranis movies, and he's he's just really funny. His timing, the way he delivers the signs, it's it's great. I mean, Go- Goodman is great too. Everybody, in the end, I I have to for me the MVP is Rick Moranis. Since I was just a lad of ten, I've had the very bestest friend. He may be big, he may be loud, so you'll never lose him in a crowd. But for my friend, the special part is what's behind his ribs, his heart. That's fair. And I told you, like, I wasn't just kidding in uh, Contrarian's Corner. I did, like, laugh out loud when he's getting tied up and they're about to (laughs) hang him. And, oh, no, I can't break a 20. I thought that was just so funny. That entire sequence with with his uh, snow cone truck is just gold. It's a great bit throughout the movie, too, because he just they don't show him getting different jobs. It's just like at different points in the movie. He just has all these different jobs. It's it's funny. Yeah. The yeah. 2023 version would be 40 minutes longer and we would watch him get all these jobs. Apply. Fill out the form. <laughs> the interview process. Yeah. And it would be the every job. The person interviewing him would be a different cameo. Be Jane Lynch <laughs> or something. Pete Davids. <laughs> yes. There you go. Uh, go, going back to Rosie O'Donnell real quick, she did win an award for her performance in this that wasn't a Golden Raspberry. She won Favorite Movie Actress at the 1995, uh, the 8th Annual Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. The one that matters uh, for this movie. Dude, listen to the insanity of this. Hosted by Whitney Houston, first and foremost. <laughs> Fresh off the bodyguard. <laughs> so in the movie category, to to begin with, at some point in this broadcast, Montel Jordan performed This Is How We Do It to put you in the uh, proper time frame. So the movie awards, favorite movie actress, Rosie O'Donnell as Betty Rubble in The Flintstones. Uh, who was she nominated against, Tulio? Listen to the insanity of this lineup. So there's only two other nominees, but it's like, what the fuck? Sandra Bullock for Speed and Sally Field for Forrest Gump. Two of those are not kids movies. <laughs> and she won. 
and Rosie O'Donnell beat out Sally Field and Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, for best actor or favorite movie actor, Jim Carrey won for Ace Ventura. He was nominated alongside Keanu Reeves for Speed and Tim Allen for The Santa Claus. And lastly, the favorite movie went to The Lion King, beating out Ace Ventura and Speed. So Speed was the only movie to get nominated for all three categories, despite the fact that that movie is a hard R. (laughs) What's going on at Nickelodeon headquarters? Maybe there's some like universe or, uh, you know, Mandela effect type thing of they did the Saturday Night Fever where they re release Speed <laughs> as PG 13 to appeal to the kids who loved Keanu Reeves. Who <laughs> loved him from what? Bill and Ted, I guess. Babes in Toyland. <laughs> uh, that, that is insane. The, the TV shows Home Improvement, Martin, and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Martin is not a show for kids. <laughs> I love it. Used to be better, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Barney, life's funny. One minute people are your best friends, and the next you're fantasizing they're being ripped apart by a pack of rabid wolves. So, the Flintstones. We met them. We had a gay old time. How much do you think is hindsight? You think a lot of it is the enjoyment we got out of it is just the novelty of seeing this. And like this ain't there will be blood, but it's um, a clear effort was made. I think that goes a long way with you and I these days. In all seriousness, I can't say it got Elizabeth Town because I hadn't seen it before. So I, I, you know, if I'd seen it and not liked it and then watched it now and liked it, then I'd be like, oh, it's the Elizabeth Town effect. (laughs) But in this case, I just watched it and it was, yeah, it was fine. it's not – I mean, it's, it feels dumb to say it's not a perfect film because it isn't. Uh, but I did have some issues that I was like, well, obviously, this is part of that. It's not for me. It's for kids. Part uh-huh. of it. Like, uh, there's – every time they went to a montage, I was like, ugh, because it, it, didn't, it didn't land. Like, there's a – you know, when they first adopt Bam Bam, that felt like they fast-forwarded yeah. it. Yeah. You know, it's like they – Bam Bam escapes the, the adoption center, and the next thing you know, they're bathing him and they're cutting his hair, and then they're playing catch. And I was like, okay, let's settle on a gag because I want to have a good time with with this idea that they they just adopted a super strong kid, but they really it feels like it's like thirty seconds, and then they're out of there and into something else. And then there's a you know they have a montage when Fred starts getting a lot of money. They drop like. What is it? Is it rocks? <laughs> the, the, the currency when Kyle Lackland just drops a whole bunch of money on his desk? Yeah, it looks like they're like stones that are different colors or something. I did love the giant ATM, that one like throwaway shot of that woman <laughs> at like, you know, it's like the fucking board from uh, Wheel of Fortune pretty much. She has to like <laughs> punch the numbers in. Uh, and then uh, and then there's another montage when uh, when we see like the, the Barney Barney Jobs were like at some point he's like a test pilot or something. <laughs> yes, the crash test dummy. Yeah. yeah, like it's funny, but I was also like, oh god, can we just? It, at times it felt very scatterbrained. And again, I understand you're making a kids movie, so you're like, okay, we don't need to like finesse these transitions or anything. Just let's get to the next gag. But that that lowers it for me. You know, that's what what kept me. Again, it's not like I'm asking for a super sophisticated Flintstones movie. I understand that this is just. 
kind of like what it had to be. But it's also, you know, if I have to tell you, well, this is not a five-star movie. <laughs> Why is it not Pixar? Uh, then, you know, I have to point out those things. Uh, Halle Berry, Alex. I don't want to get to to rate this thing without talking about Halle Berry. Uh, oh, yeah. Because she's not an actress that I generally, like, follow that I'm excited about. Uh, I probably mentioned that when we did Swordfish on the show years ago. So this might be my favorite Halle Berry performance. <laughs> my God. I, it is a performance. Like, jokes about how hot she is aside. I... You know, I'm not gonna say it's a layer performance because it's it doesn't need to be right. Like they told her play uh-huh. play femme fatale, and and she nails it and she milks it as much as she can and she gets some really funny moments, and then she has the moment of the turn and she she helps Fred, and then I I am with you at the end of the corner. I appreciate so much that she ends up being arrested anyway. Yeah, and she walks away with with kind of like this playful defiance of like, "Well, I was a bad girl," and and then they take her away, and it's is really memorable. Moranis is the MVP, but the most memorable element for me is going to be Halle Berry, which, funnily enough, it's why we started, you know, why we put this movie on the roster. So it's it's good. Like now, you revisiting it, you've you've had this in your mind for years and years. You're like, this is Halle Berry's hottest movie. It. Does it still does it hold up? I mean, yeah, she's unbelievably attractive, <laughs> uh, but no, she's yeah, great in it too. And in terms of uh, like you said, not a layered performance, but having like the the moral conflicts at certain points, and like the uh, there's just some parts where she will say something and then kind of look off and you know wonder if she's doing the right thing. And uh, John Goodman reacting as any of us. Would in that situation <laughs> too, just kind of, yeah, exactly, and just kind of like you know, completely swimming in his head. And I, I do love too, just Elizabeth Perkins just sees her and it's just like, hmm, the the dicta bird, like your wife. Yeah, what about my wife? <laughs> <laughs> that is something I liked that it didn't become this thing where uh, Wilma was suddenly jealous and they got into a fight or anything. She just took it as like, oh. Yeah. You, you have a hot secretary, but that they depict that relationship as being so solid that it doesn't she doesn't really think that Fred's going to cheat on her, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> the movie's ninety minutes, it doesn't have time to go down that rabbit hole. Like we said, this isn't isn't Lynch or uh Aronofsky's Flintstones, so maybe maybe one day. <laughs> Fred having an affair. Just the graphic sex scenes between him and Sharon Stone. How did we did we not mention that her name is Sharon Stone? Yeah, I didn't really find anything at surface level about like it's obviously haha Sharon Stone. I'm curious if she tried to like file an injunction to stop the release of the movie or something. <laughs> I mean, ninety four is just what a couple of years removed from Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, one year removed from Sliver, so it was a very topical reference. So- it was the role was meant to be played by Sharon Stone as a joke, but she turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. So sounds like she was just a good sport about like, eh, eh, there you go. There you go. The last name Stone. I mean, least you could do. Well, I've been a very bad girl. But you have to admit, I was very, very good at it. For the Latin America dubbed version, Miss Sharon Stone was renamed Agatha Crystal. Oh, 
No, we we <laughs> we got the short end of the, <laughs> the stick there. That's not that's not sexy for <laughs> Fred was Pedro and Barney was Pablo. So there you go. Told you. And then in closing, I do. I brought this up in Contrarian's Corner, but to give this joke its proper praise, I just absolutely lost it when Fred said, I got to think of something. And it's him thinking of his mother-in-law getting eaten by a dinosaur. I thought that was just wonderful. Did you laugh at Wilma referencing the Avrock lady? She goes to open the door. She's like, I hope it's not the Avrock lady. Ah, I... That kind of went over my head, but now that's that's tremendous. They had a lot of fun. I don't care how many 30-something writers. Good. <laughs> if that's what was needed to make it, you know, that funny. I, I, I understand. If puns are not your thing, then this is a nightmare because they come at you fast and often. But uh, I had no problem with it. I was like, oh, this is what we're doing? All right. <laughs> Sit back and enjoy. All right, Julio. So moment of truth. Where does this land for you? Uh, so it's funny because I was thinking three stars and then throughout this conversation, it just inched up to three and a half. So My God. The perfectly good movie that I would recommend to parents that don't know what to <laughs> have their kids watch. And it's one of those. It's got to become like Howard the Duck, like uh, Take Me Home Tonight. Uh, here comes a boom. It's just one of those movies that's going to become a, an example of what we do in this show. And it's like, hey, defines it's, our mission statement. Yeah, it says rotten, and it's so much better than what that image conjures. You know, there's so much more to dig there. There's also the fact that it's only 48 reviews. Uh, there's a lot of factors, there's a lot of complexity that goes into just telling you what the movie's strengths and weaknesses are, and you know, the score doesn't really do any of that so yeah yeah i recommend the flintstones three and a half stars what's your score alex i gave it three stars on letterbox uh i'm content giving this thing a, a c plus like in the the highest the shiniest most uh, positive c plus a movie could get uh, so <laughs> if you haven't seen it check it out because overall even if you end up not liking it it's only 90 minutes and um it's a good time yeah it, it's and you will not see it again it's not going to happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the official contrarian seal of approval on this one. Yeah. Nah, uh, if any of you have watched Viva Rock Vegas, let us know. We're not watching it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. So we have satisfied the Halle Berry leg of this. Julio, what's next? Coming up next. This is it. We close down our tab. We, we pay the final installment of our livestream for the cure debt. The Tom Cruise tier, the highest one, and we reached it. So it's time for Jerry Maguire. The crowbar comes back to the show. Hell yeah. Have we done a Tom Cruise movie on the main feed? Uh, Not off the top of my head. I can't think of it either. I know we talked about him. We've referenced him, but this might be Tom Cruise's debut. If it's not, I'm sure that. People will correct us and we'll correct ourselves on the actual episode. But Jerry Maguire, fresh, watch it. Might be the most Tom Cruise movie around. I don't know. Some people would say Top Gun, but we'll see. W w there's a lot to talk about. There's uh, Renee Zellweger. Jay Moore. Bonnie Hunt. Bonnie Hunt. Um, Jonathan Lipnicki, of course. Is it Kelly Preston? Kelly Preston and Academy Award winner Cuba Gooding Jr. It's what he won for. So. It's what he won for. It's, it's what it, we were too too early in, in 
the history of humanity for it to become a meme. But if that had happened today, he would have been memed to death. Oh, his acceptance speech. Yeah. Would yeah. Still. Yeah. I'm surprised it hasn't become like uh, resurfaced and used today, but maybe we can take that as our <laughs> our responsibility. Yes. Let's uh, do it. But all right. <laughs> Jerry Maguire is up next. That's it. Watch it. Be ready for it. Alex, let's get out of here. Let's yabba dabba do. Welcome to our end credits. Or as we usually call them, our perennial plugs. We start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand and take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser is the man behind our logo and all the art you see related to our show. Reach out to him and let him know how much you like that little tomato. His email address is mildemonios at hotmail.com and his website is mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also check out his podcast, Nación Combi, about Peruvian current affairs and Marginal, about economy. Hans, thank you for all your support. For those interested in the regularly absurd world of professional wrestling, Joe and the boys over at LateNightGrin.com have you covered. Tell them the contrarians sent you. And we'd like to close with special thanks to our social media team of Zoe Perez and Coriari. Each of the social media accounts we mentioned in the introduction look as good as they do because of their work. So that'll do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. How much money you make to get a room.